Okay, perhaps uh, we'll to begin then. Okay, this is the first um, talk um, about the retreat that we're going to be doing over this coming three weeks. And tonight I want to concentrate actually on Metta itself. And I was giving a title to this, I think I'd call it Metta Matters, <laughs> because that's really what it's about, in talking about how Metta really does matter in this world. If we look around the world at the present moment, I think what we see is a meta-deficit rather than a surplus. There's not a lot of it around in our politics and our social institutions and everything else. We live in a time perhaps no different in many ways from the time the Buddha lived in the sense that a lot of the basic emotions of human beings haven't changed that much over two and a half thousand years. Our ways of destroying ourselves have changed quite a lot. Um, but in general, the psychological wellsprings of our unpleasant behavior haven't changed that much at all. Now, we tend to, of course, look at this unpleasantness, and in a way, perhaps that's where I'm going to start, because in the, in a in order to get a, a glimpse of what metta is, perhaps we have to see what it is not. Because there are many states of mind which arise within us which automatically exclude us from being in a state of metta. Now before I get on to that, and I'm just holding that out as a promissory note at this stage, before I get on to that, I want to talk a little bit about the word love. Because in English, we have one word um, for love, um, and we have all kinds of associations that come with it, because when we translate the word metta, we can translate it as loving-kindness, and I'll say some more, obviously, about that. But when we look at the word love, it comes replete with all sorts of associations, mostly associations which are to do with, I don't know, the stuff of novels and pop songs and all of the romantic associations. Even in Greek, they make a distinction between different forms of love. So we have eros and agape and philos in Greek. Erotic love, sexual love, romantic love. We have agape, which is much closer to meta, disinterested love. Specifically, uh, this went in, particularly in New Testament Greek, it meant the disinterested love of God for creation. You know, loving everything equally within it. And then we have philos, love of wisdom. So they make distinctions. We don't have that. We just have one blanket word within English for that. You know, just this little word, love. So no wonder we get confused about it sometimes. Now, the love that we're talking about in terms of metta is a love which is much closer to agape, much closer to the sense of this equality, this disinterested love. Love without strings, which we don't often find in this world. Most of what passes for loving relationships come fully replete with strings attached, um, often in a form of narcissism that we find. And when we, for example, begin the metta as we will tomorrow, the actual metta practice, then we will begin by looking at self and trying to develop some kind of loving, friendly relationship with ourself. Now, that has to be obviously distinguished from narcissism, 
narcissistically looking into ourselves and glorifying ourselves in some way. And so we have to get very clear what's going on in the metta practice when we start to look at self in this way. Narcissism is something which besets us. It's egotism written in another way, self-love, self-grasping. Um, it's the way, and, and any of you know the myth of Narcissus? You'll probably be familiar with the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus is so in love with himself, he falls into his own reflection and drowns. Uh, and in many ways, and I alluded to this last night, in many ways, that's what we're doing. We're drowning in self. It, it, it occludes our vision of everything else. When we're so full of ourselves, when we're so immersed in ourselves, it occludes us seeing others, being in relation with others. So, in fact, what usually passes for love relations in this world are really competing narcissisms. That is all. What passes, obviously, sometimes for conversation is interrupted monologues about yourself. So, this is not what um, the Buddha is talking about in talking about metta bhavana. Now, it's worth pausing a minute just on that word bhavana. This is the word that usually gets translated as meditation. Uh, it doesn't really mean that at all. It means cultivation. What people who are engaged in Buddhist practice are doing is cultivating, they're not meditating. You're attempting to bring something into being. If we meditate on it, it can be a nice idea, uh, which we might not do anything about. You, know, you dwell on kind of soppy feelings for a little while. But that is not what this is about. Mm. What it is about is actually accomplishing this task of bringing this state of metta into being in the world, this state of loving-kindness and friendliness in the world. And also, when we look at this word in its original language in Pali and Sanskrit, the word metta is linked to the word mitta. I don't know if any of you know this. Mitta is, as in Kalyana mitta, means friend. And this is a kind of relationship that you would have with a friend who was deeply in need of something, somebody who you cared so much about. And so this was a kind of boundless sense of friendship towards all things. That is the emotional quality behind this. And let's put it very strongly, this is an emotion. It's an emotional way of engaging with the world. It, I often see these descriptions of a fairly bloodless form of Buddhism that are propagated around. It's not emotional. Well, it is. It's just having the right emotions. And we certainly have all wrong emotions very easily. The anger, the jealousy, the envy, the conceit. These are all blockages to metta. When those are present, particularly conceit, in other words, conceit, if you look at the etymology of the word conceit, it's to do with haughtiness, lording it over others, putting self first, you know, having this sense of elevation above others. Uh, conceit is one of, if you like, the obstacles, the impediments. I love this word impediment. You know, impediment is something that stops you walking. You know, it stops you walking on the path. You know, so when conceit is present, metta cannot be present. When jealousy is present, metta cannot be present. 
because these are always to do with self. They're always about self, being embedded in that sense of ego, selfishness, that pervades so much of our ordinary experience. Now, I don't want to make this depressive, um, because that's not always how it is. But a lot of our experience, a lot of the feeling tone behind our experience, is of self-concern. When we come into the now, a lot of these things can drop away. When we come into the present moment, a lot of these things can drop away. They can literally fall away because, for example, let's take a very strong emotion that governs a lot of our day-to-day existence, fear. Fear is futural. It's about something in the future. In the present moment, if one really lives in that present moment, there can be no fear. Fear is attached to what might happen to oneself. Or to what one is attached to, in some way or another. Now all of these, and there are many lists, I can give you lists, but I'm not going to tonight. Um, But we will touch on it on other talks I give to you. These are literally blockages and obstructions to our view. These are emotional blockages. Things which are not awakening that heart-mind relationship. They are linked deeply, deeply to self. Now, I was very, very moved earlier on in the year, and I want to read just a couple of passages from this. It's uh, nothing Buddhist <coughs> at all, um, but it was a little book that I came across called Rowing Without Oars, um, which was by um, a journalist and news presenter in, I think it was in Sweden. Her name was Ulla Karin Lindquist, and she died of a, a particularly virulent form of motor neuron disease. And she gives an account, almost all up to her death, of what it was like. And I just want to read you a couple of passages, because they are about bringing us back to the present. You know, the present moment where metta can be developed, where it can be actualized. And this is the first little passage, and it is quite short. I want to read you. She said, I'm going to die of this particular form of motor neuron disease, which is called ALS, if nothing unpredictable happens. There are two roads I can take. One is to lie down, be bitter, and wait. (laughs) The other is to make something worthwhile of the misfortune. See it in a positive light, however banal that sounds. My road is the second. I have to live in the immediate present. There is no bright future for me. But there is a bright present. Children live like this, only for the present. Nothing coming afterwards. And therefore I laugh like a child, uncontrollably. And this is even brought more forcibly home by her young son. Um, And her young son is called Gustav. And he says this to her. And he almost acts as a teacher, which I think is wonderful. Gustav comes and stands by my bed. Do you write all the time, Mummy? It takes such a long time, I reply, now. I only write with two fingers. Mummy, I'm a miniature human being. What? You're big and I'm little. 
No, Gustav, you're big. You have your whole life in front of you. The future. Now it's me who's getting smaller. Mommy, every second is a life, he says gently. What did you say? Every second is a life. Where have you heard that? Nowhere. I just made it up. And he carries on. You have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives left, Mommy. Every second is a life, I simply echo. I think that's a very powerful way of, you know, even under such extreme circumstances about being aware of the power of coming into the present and seeing what can be done in that present moment. That present moment can be full, as we know all too well in our ordinary daily days, day-to-day situations, it can be full of animosity, aversion, jealousy, envy, conceit, <laughs> go through them all again. Yeah. It can be full of those things, or it can be full of something else full of being in relation, and it is metta and karuna and ankampa, which brings us into relation. Let me just give you translations of those if you're not familiar with them yet. Loving kindness, friendliness, empathy, and of course eventually compassion, which will bring us into a relation with others. Most of what counts for relation without those is not relation. It's something else. It's usually attachment. This is why what is so called often called love, what we describe as love, so quickly turns into hatred when things go wrong. When somebody has to be something for me and no longer fulfills that role. What occurs, of course, from that is a flipping over into irritation, anger, resentment, jealousy, all of these things, because now no longer am I being upheld, the other person is no longer a mirror for me at all, not giving me what I want. And so when we move into this space of metta, when we move into this space of friendliness and kindness, it means, in a sense, moving out into the world, we're a bit like, I don't know, tortoises, carrying our little carapaces on our backs of all of what we need, all of the baggage that we carry around with us, all that tries to sustain us in our being. Yet, in a sense, it is a thick armour which separates us from others doesn't bring us into relationship. To move into that relationship means to relinquish, to let go. To let go of the hatreds, the anger. In a sense, to let them wear themselves out. Letting go is even the wrong word. Seeing the futility that's attached to those. One of my favourite little sayings is, you know, why have animosity when life is so short? One of the sayings of the Buddha. Why should there be animosity? Life is so short. Why are we carried around with it? 
Some of you might be very familiar with the opening verses of the Dhammapada. In the Dhammapada, you know, Buddha says, hatred is never overcome by hatred. Hatred is only overcome by love. Yeah. And I love the little bit he says after that. He said, this is an ancient rule. <laughs> this is two and a half thousand years ago. And it was ancient to the Buddha. <laughs> it shows you how long around that had been and talked about in Indian society at that period. And so it's that letting go of it, the movement into something else, into a different way of being, a dropping of our normal conditioned patterns of dealing with things, of moving away from envy. I love one of the other things that cuts us off from people that the Buddha talks about. These are all listed, by the way, in the Abhidharma, all these psychological states. There's a wonderful one, which is called stinginess. <laughs> uh, and he links it to avariciousness as well. Yeah. We are avaricious. Actually, the West is amazingly avaricious. Yeah. We want more and more and more and more. We're stimulating ourselves up to death mm-hmm. you know, all the time. Um, the phrase I often use about this is we're amusing ourselves to death. Because that's what we're engaging in. Now, hopefully I'm beginning to present a picture to you what metta is not, and a little bit about what metta perhaps is in this. It's something which brings us into relationship, into this relationship of friendliness. The way it's described in the metta sutta, as you heard me say, is, as I, when I read it out last night, is a relationship of a mother to her only child that kind of relationship, which is a real relationship, not sort of futile relationship. But it also is a relationship that brings, uh, something that brings us into a relationship with everything, not just human beings, other human beings, not even just other sentient creatures, but brings into a relationship with everything. Now, we make a great play often in Buddhism of learning, in a sense, to see, don't we? learning to see what's going on. You know, it's one of the phrases I often find myself using you know, in meditation courses. Look at what's going on, see what's going on, identify it. But in a way, without the metta, it sounds a bit cold. It can be a little bit, oh, I've seen it, I've noted it, there it is. Um, again, I want to quote you from a non-Buddhist source again. This is a German poet, or a German writer, he was actually born in Czechoslovakia. But uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, Rilke. And so I'm only going to read you an extract, it's only a couple of pieces from this. It's a little poem called Turning Point. Um, and again, I think it shows you how we can just look and look and look and still somehow miss something. For a long time he attained it in looking. Stars would fall to their knees beneath his compelling vision. Or as he looked on, kneeling, his urgency's fragrance tired out a god until it smiled at him in his sleep. Towers he would gaze at so that they were terrified, building them up again suddenly in an instant. And how often the landscape, overburdened by day, came to rest in his silent awareness at nightfall. Animals trusted him, stepped into his open look, gazing in the imprisoned lions, stared in as if into an incomprehensible freedom. There was the rumour that somebody knew how to look, stirred those less visible creatures. 
But there is a boundary to looking. And the world that is looked at so deeply simply needs to flourish in love. Work of the eyes is done. Now go and do heart work. Of all the images that are imprisoned within you, you've simply overpowered them. But even now you don't know them. Look in a man on your inner woman, the one attained from a thousand natures, the merely attained but not yet beloved form. Again, I think it's a powerful rendition of how simply, in a way, love is the task that we need to engage in. That the, the looking, the seeing, the identifying so much of what we can do simply isn't enough. We have to, as I even suggested to you in the meditation earlier on today, learn to love our demons. Learn to, in a sense, cherish them in a way. That doesn't mean holding on to them. That doesn't mean indulging them and petting them. But it does mean learning to love them and let them go as well. So the metta is really a boundless metta. It's a, a holding of everything. It's a way of knowing the world in a completely different way from the way that we normally do it, which is about self-interest, the way we normally hold the world. Yeah. What's in it for me is the background agenda, often. Now, I'm not suggesting again that that's all the time, because I'm not being cynical in that way, but so much of what our relation with, with relationship with the world and with others, in an unacknowledged sense, because it's not fully conscious, is often having that agenda that isn't fully explicit to ourselves. So much of the work that goes on in the meditative experience is a work of, in a sense, learning to identify, learning to see, but to see even our negativity. Our negative, the word that's used is unwholesome, our kusala moments of consciousness, to see them with a slightly different gaze, not wishing to swap them away, not wishing to, as I said earlier on today, annihilate them, but to allow them to be and go. What we're doing in this task of bhavana is creating conditions. What Rob talked about last night in terms of intentions. Getting the intention right. If we get the intentions right, then everything falls into place. This is not a forcing, it's not a, a pushing. It's, as I suggested to you earlier on, it's a gentler path than that. So metawa is the task that we're engaging in. And we have to see and identify those moments of consciousness, which are the blockages which is the occlusions to our vision. To see operative without hatred, without aversion, and I believe Kathleen's going to say quite a bit about aversion later on in the week, <laughs> to see without aversion that which is arising within us, which we would identify as being unwholesome. To see it 
to the way to appreciate it and to let it go. Because, and I'm going to put this very simply, because if we can learn to appreciate the kind of mess within ourselves that's there, that we see arising and passing away, then we can learn to perhaps appreciate what is going on for others and to not be so critical about the messes that they deliver into the world, because we're all doing it. We're all in the same position here. We're all strivers, we're all seekers, or walkers on that path, and none of us have yet arrived. So if we can learn to appreciate our own fallibility, the what is going on, and learn in a sense to love it without holding on to it, we can learn to do it a lot easier with others and perhaps not be in that critical, negative state of mind. And then developing positive qualities like the relationship of friendliness, kindness. Many of you have probably seen that sticker around. I love it still. It's kind of a bit hackneyed now. But, you know, um, commit random acts of kindness. (laughs) Because that's what it's about. Learning to bring ourselves into a different relation by committing ourselves to acts of kindness. Now sometimes in the training for Metta, some of it is going to be in a way simply behavioural. We have to go through the motions of doing it to feel perhaps what it is like to engage in those forms. Now here we have, I would like to describe meditation experience by the way as a controlled experiment (laughs) because we have kind of controlled conditions under which it's done. You come to meditation <coughs> centre like Gaia House, and you're in a controlled environment, um, you sit and you can look at the difficulty in this, in this nice space in which it's held. Now, the task really, as we all know, is out there. It's out in our ordinary daily lives and our practical day-to-day existences. And that is the testing ground for it. Now, sometimes... Um, automatically what we do in the meditation doesn't feed in to what goes on in day life. So we still have to. Does that mean, therefore, that we can't practice metta? Of course it doesn't. It means that we have to train ourselves to be a kinder and friendlier, perhaps even when um, everything is screaming, no, please don't. <laughs> I don't want to do this. And so it's very behavioural. You know, if you want to, in some ways, to feel what kindness is about, engage in kind behaviour. Not just wait for the the feeling to come. Um, a little while back when I was teaching a retreat here, I remember saying to people, well, one of the pieces of information I very valued when came from one particular Tibetan teacher, when somebody complained to him and said, look, um, I don't feel compassionate. And he just said to him, feel compassionate? Just behave compassionately. <laughs> what do you mean feel? <laughs> So sometimes we just have to engage in the behaviour. And metta is no different. We just have to do it. Because sometimes we could wait a whole lifetime for the feeling to arise. (laughs) And I think we have this myth of authenticity in the West, don't we? We've got, don't do it unless you feel it. Well, perhaps it doesn't quite work like that. But sometimes you just have to engage in the behaviour for us to actually 
begin to experience a little of what it might be like to feel in that genuine way. Now, one of the things that you'll probably gather, even just from what I've just said now, acting, is that this isn't just a head thing. This is to do with our physical comportment in the world as well. The way, if you like, that we speak and act with our full embodiedness. Because well, we all know, don't we, what it's like to feel tense and aggressive and pent up and the body tightens up at that. We know those very strongly. When you get angry, you have a very physical sense of anger in the body. It's a body experience. Now, the same with metta. Metta itself will... Well, initially, perhaps we have to look at it in our comportment, in the way that we are in the world, physically. Are our gestures, for example, ones of aggression? We might not be thinking that, but our bodies might be doing something else. Or are they gestures of kindness, of openness? The classic ones we all know is the difference, you know, same, same physical organ here, you know, between the clenched fist and the opened hand. We have these in Buddhist iconography, we have these you know, hand gestures, which are called mudra. You know, mudra are gestures of awakening. And there's a lovely quote which I love from the um, one Chinese sutra, the Mahayana Sutra, which is that the Buddha went through the world with bliss-bestowing hands, which is a lovely image. And so it's looking at uh, metta in relation to every aspect and dimension of our lives. Again, bringing metta into the metta practice, not in to be just self-critical, I'm falling short of doing this or doing that, but, but we have to be aware of the obstruction, we have to be aware of the blockages, we have to be aware when there is conceit, mana. We have to be aware when there's jealousy. We have to be aware when there is envy or stinginess in our actions. In order to let them go. To see it, to appreciate it, and to let it go. So it's not simply for getting into self-criticism again. And, and I really do strongly emphasize this. When we talk about metta, metta infuses everything, our whole relation with the world, coming back to something I've said before. So it's about our embodied, active relationship with everything. So that is why it's a way of knowing, why it's not simply a nice, fuzzy, woolly feeling about the world. It's actual engagement. When we come to look at the other dimensions of what we're going to be examining and practicing over these weeks, then we'll also be looking at the relation with empathy and compassion as well, how these are dynamic ways of being in the world. They're not just nice feelings. 
So the emphasis is always on the dynamic, practical way with which we engage physically and mentally with the world. With not one taking precedent over the other. It is not the elevation of the bodily over the mental or mental over the bodily. You know, we are, if you like, body minds. We're not body and mind. In fact, the reason I emphasize so much the bodily dimension in this in this practice is because often in the West people have problems with their bodies. One of my favourite quotes is from James Joyce's Dubliners, when he says when he talks about one particular person that is living at a distance from their body. <laughs> you know, because that's often how we live. I mean, he lived at a short distance from his body. That's it. Yeah. And that's how we can often live in the West. We're not really engaging. We can engage with the head stuff but we don't actually come down into this groundedness, this physicalness of being here. What we also are, we are engaged physically with the world. We can either not lend a hand or we can lend a hand to being in this world. So we have this image of using the hand. Think of the ways in which we can you know, engage with even the physical objects which are around us, which is in some ways, again, without getting neurotic about it, but we can either care for those things or, in a sense, we can destroy them for the physical things which are around us. Think of the ways of engaging with materials that we use of... You know, the way, for example, a craftsperson will work with the material, with love for that material, and the way mass production works you know, in producing things. It's a completely different relationship. So, the message is coming from all of this, as I'm trying to give you, is that it covers every aspect of our being. And it is so important, coming back to the meta-matters, because it brings us into this relationship rather than feeling cut off. Have you ever noticed how being an individual is such a heavy responsibility? <laughs> Isn't it? It's awful. <laughs> yeah. When you think of the, the conceit that goes with that, you know, of, of trying to elevate yourself above others and be something, <laughs> you know, whereas the letting go of that actually brings us into relationship. Being an individual, this tough task of being an individual in this world, um, is a, one of increasingly feeling cut off. And we live in a culture of individualism, which is you know, the way that we have developed, particularly in the Western world, into this cult of individualism. Hence, so many miserable faces around the world, because we've all got this terrible task of having to be an individual, yeah. with all of the cut-offness that that brings with it. So we have these huge cities full of individuals striving, feeling miserable and alone. 
Now, in many ways, I think you know, even if we're practicing, obviously that echoes through in our own experiences because we can't suddenly divorce ourselves from all of the conditioning that has brought us to this state of individuality. So it's not simply a case of you know, just simply dropping it, because we can't simply drop it. But we have to make movements into engagement. Now, when we are in those states, again, I'll just go through them, when we're in the states of cons conceit and envy and jealousy and anger, they reinforce our sense of I-ness, of cut-offness from this world. They don't bring us into engagement. Whereas metta, when genuinely developed, brings us into that engagement with others and everything that is other to us. The world and all those beings within the world. It brings us into that. So it's a dynamic it's not a nice passive feeling. It's an activity. It's, to use the phrase I've said before, it's a way of knowing. So when we come into that relation, we feel engaged with others. Not, as I say, cut off. The mythology that I've spoken about already, the mythology of narcissism, of narcissistic behaviour, is very good at showing us what the problem is. We are stuck with our own image. We are caught, captured by images which are held out to us by you know, all of the advertising, the media and everything that we see around us is trying to proclaim images for us to inhabit. And we lose something of our being in doing that. This narcissism entraps us, in other words. We're trapped by our own image. Many of you might have even heard me say this before, but there's a lovely, it actually comes from a psychoanalytic tradition, there's a lovely little bit by somebody called Jacques Lacan, who is a French psychoanalyst, and he basically says that apes are more intelligent than humans. For one reason, he said, you hand an ape a mirror, and what does the ape do? It looks at the mirror and then goes... <laughs> <laughs> and then loses all interest. What happens to a human being when they get a mirror? <laughs> and they're entrapped by their image forever. <laughs> gazing lovingly into their own eyes, or not even lovingly in many cases. And I'm joking about this, but I think it's a very powerful way of actually saying what actually happens. We get entrapped by our images. Yeah. What we see literally in the mirror for ourselves. I talked about earlier on about mirroring behavior. You know, people who we want close to us because they... They mirror something about what we want to feel about ourselves. Now, this is not relationship. This is not engagement. It's distance. It's competing egotisms, often. Because if that's often going on for yourself, it's going also on for the other person. 
Now, there's a wonderful cartoon I discovered quite a number of years ago. I often talk about this but because it, was, it made such an impression on me because I thought it um, really did say something particularly about the masculine-feminine relationship in this world. And it was uh, a couple sitting over uh, a dinner table. And there's quite a lot of the squares. You know, and he's, he's leaning across the table talking at the woman who's on the other side. And above each of the squares, it went, me. In the little bubble above his head, it went, me, 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 for absolutely loads of squares. And then it comes down, and he has obviously finished talking. He leans back, she leans across the table. And above the bubble in her head comes, me. <laughs> and he just goes, <laughs> And I think, in a way, in a, in a sort of comedy sense of, of a way of putting that forward, it actually says a lot. You know, what we're interested in is ourselves. <laughs> Are we deeply interested in the other? So meta, really, when we talk about it, is, is, is I'm really trying to put this across to you forcefully, is not simply about you know, just simply having a nice feeling. It's about the ways that we engage, the ways that we know others. Does, as Rilke suggests, does the things that we see come into a loving gaze, into a friendly gaze, or is it a gaze of distanciation, of pushing away? It was talked about last night, silence, which Catherine was talking about. Silences, there are of many, many different types. There's the comfortable silence, the pregnant silence, the uncomfortable silence. We talk about noble silence or ignoble silence. There's a very funny story by a Nobel Prize winner. It's a little short story by Heinrich Böll. I don't know if anybody knows this author. Um, It's about a man who works in a recording studio and he um, decides to make a tape of all of the silences in interviews (laughs) 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 by splicing them all together. Because all of the silences have different qualities. <laughs> is that silence a loving silence? In other words, is it a relaxed, friendly silence? So it touches every dimension of what we're engaged in. And what we're engaged in is life. So it's not just about in centres, as you well know, and speaking to a group of people who've done quite a lot of practice, but I just want to emphasise it, because sometimes it just gets forgotten occasionally. So it's about everything we do, when we're talking about these things, of metta, karuna, and, and kampa, we're talking about them in every relation of life. Now, we're going to fail. Let's admit it. <laughs> Let's be honest about it. A lot of the time we're going to fail. But as each time, for example, in the breath meditation that you've been doing, we drift away from the breath, so what? It's the intention. The bringing yourself gently back and focusing again. That element of sati that I mentioned before, of remembrance in what you're doing. Because that word sati does not only mean mindfulness, it means remembrance. Of remembering what you're actually trying to do. Now, we're not perfect, otherwise we'd be arahats and we'd be off. (laughs) But we're not doing it. We're not there. So we are going to fail, but be gentle with your failures. 
be kind towards your failure. Yeah. Again, that's not self-indulgence. There's always a fine line here. Yeah. It's not being self-indulgent. It's actually being kinder in your response to the times when you screw up. And we so easily do, don't we? We so easily do. We go out in the morning, perhaps with the best intentions, I'm going out to be friendly. <laughs> to engage in the world with a different... But then what happens? <laughs> you know, I won't need to spell it out. Something happens, we screw up along the way. Yeah? But it's keep coming back and reminding ourselves that perhaps coming into this more loving relationship and seeing when it is effective, just how it brings us into completely different forms of relationship with others. Let's just talk about it in the human world for this moment in time. Yeah. It brings us into a completely different relationship where things are perhaps not so thorny, so competing, as I say, egotisms, bashing away at each other, but actually come into a gentler sphere. Now, one description, that's, I'm going to come to a little bit of textual material, one description is often given in the, in the suttas and also particularly in the Abhidhamma, about the different qualities of this. It describes kusala states of mind, skillful states of mind, such as metta, as being gentle, having a softness to them. Whereas a kusala ones, which cut us off in the Abhidhamma, are described as hard and brittle. Yeah. And I think, again, we can see that in softness and hardness of bodies as well. You know, the way that we are even physically. You know, we can certainly see it in the mental, the brittle-like quality of anger. You know, the brittle quality of envy or jealousy. You know, and that softening quality, how it softens a situation that's there when metta or compassion is present in that situation. Also, in developing this, it's, it's looking, it means as looking at our patterns of reactivity. Now, most of those patterns of reactivity are also patterns of distress. Yeah. We have a technical word for these, which we call them sankharas, conditioned formations. Yeah. Most of them are patterns of distress and reinforced patterns of distress, because we keep going round and round and round in them, in general. What the introduction of practices like metta and karuna and so on and so forth bring into it, is that starting to loosen up those patterns of distress. Even beginning to loosen up our feelings about our embeddedness in those patterns to start with. Because often we have a pattern of distress which we hate being embedded with it. And the loosening up comes, the softening of it comes, when we can start to hold those things quite differently. So metta is a softening as loving kindness and friendliness suggests. It's an openness, <coughs> a more expansive dimension than something which is hard and brittle. 
I think I'm not going to say much more. I'm going to kind of perhaps just see if there's any questions around what I've said. Now, we will have a formal question and answer session on Wednesday. So you don't need to if you want to reflect further before asking any questions. But I'll just leave it open for a few minutes. We've got about 10 minutes to see if there are any kind of reflections. They don't even have to be questioned, by the way. Kind of reflections on what's being talked about. Uh, you, you mentioned about um, having people close to you that mirror something and that being problematic and that um, somehow we're relating to each the wrong way. And I, and I also can understand what you mean in that, in that sort of stickiness that comes. However, there's also some inspiration somehow from that, mm. or at least that's my experience. I just wondered if you could say a bit about those things. Well... <sighs> When I talk about the kind of mirroring that goes on as being the unhelpful type of mirroring, I mean in the sense that it's always presenting back to us often an image of ourselves that we want. Not really in the sense highlighting problems. And in fact, um, often when somebody doesn't do that we, for us, we can feel aggressive occasionally. We don't want to know them. Um, we fall out of relationship often when that mirroring um, starts to fall away. That's the kind of thing I'm really talking about, is when, it, when it's, it's, you're with another person because they give something to you. In other words, they embed you in your own sense of self rather than opening up something for you. Now, often, I think, you know, with what I call positive images of somebody, perhaps somebody who's inspirational, as you say, I mean, I see figures sometimes in the Buddhist world, who, you know, in my years in the Buddhist world, who have been very inspirational. Um, and, and people, in a sense, you want to um, aspire to be like in some way or another. Now, that can be quite different. And actually, if you, often when you get into a relationship with those, they can be quite challenging. You know, we, you know, the teachers I've often been in relationship with over the years are often the ones that have kind of said, you know, what are you playing around at? Why don't you do this? It's not... It's not um, presenting a nice, cosy image of yourself back to you. It's actually challenging aspects of your behaviour because it's useful. But you still respect those people because they are, you know, they are inspirational. So it's, it's that stickiness of ordinary human relations which I'm really talking about. That, that kind of embeddedness that you feel in our sense of self and, and the way somebody can keep presenting that back to you. That's what I'm I'm just trying to understand your explaining meta. You use the um, analogy of a mother love for her own her child. Mm -hmm. I'm just a bit confused because wouldn't a mother put her own child before other children or other people? Therefore, there isn't that there, it isn't meta because you're putting someone before someone else. It's the image that's used. It is the image that's used in the text. I must admit, um, it's that sense of of care. I think that's being implied. That, you know, when of course it comes into the sense of meta, the true strong sense of meta, then it's a caring for all, in the same way as another would care yeah. for her only child. Yeah. Um, going back to mirroring, mm -hmm. I think. 
sometimes there's a sort of mirroring, usually with, with relationships which aren't so good, you know, with, with people you have trouble with, with difficulty with, when they, instead of um, mirroring a good image, you know, an image, strengthening the, the image you want, it actually has an, if you respond properly anyway, so it can have an opening uh, effect because it's mirroring back a quality of mine which is not so good. Mm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and if I observe this and respond to it, then I can open. Mm. And so in that respect, mirroring can be quite helpful. Oh yes, I think that can. That's what I was saying about sometimes with, with teachers and uh, who, yeah. can, who can mirror back something to you yeah, by showing you yourself. Yeah. Yeah. as you are rather than presenting with the image you want to have of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so again, it's, it's kind of loosening up that stuckness mm. that we have. But mm. it can be very painful <laughs> you know, when your, you know, your prized image of yourself is somehow shattered mm. and you're not see, you're seeing yourself now as this person you want to see yourself mm. as. Yeah, right. That can be very, very painful. You might just walk away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, again, that it's about our own sense of egotism, our own mm. embeddedness in our self, the self that we want to see as an individual walking through this world. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's an opening up. It's, mm. it's really opening up. That's what I mean by my meta practice in general. It's a softening, it's an opening. It's not getting stuck. Mm. Now, part of the opening sometimes is opening to difficulty. Mm to the difficulty that we are presented with day to day, you know, just, in, just in being in this world. That's the task for all of us, opening to difficulty. Because often um, we like to go with the easy. Images are often presented and we go to the easier of the images or the easier um, ideal that's presented for us, not the most difficult. There's a lovely metaphor, and you probably know this, Rose, I mean, that's presented in Tibetan Buddhism often, is that you know you have peaceful and wrathful deities. Which one are you going to go to? <laughs> you go towards the peaceful, not towards the wrathful. And actually, possibly, it's mostly the wrathful that you need to be going to. And this is kind of, in a way, describing our psychology, how we take the easy route. Yeah. And the easy route is not often the productive one. I'll echo Kierkegaard, he says, I come to make life more difficult. <laughs> but seriously, within that, is that sometimes we have to experience the complexity, that there often aren't easy, simple solutions to the problems of life. Yeah. Now, we can open to that if we prepare ourselves with a ground of metta. It becomes the ground upon which we walk. I'm using lots of images here to try and get this across to you. But metta simply becomes the most important grounding of our being in this world, which is utterly transforming. It's the only way you can put it. It's utterly, it transforms everything. All of our relationships. When that is the ground from which we operate. This is why, and this is why, coming back to the point I was making last night, this is why 
the Buddha is so strongly claiming this is the same as the awakening experience because just as insight will transform, then this metta will show us the difficulties and it will also highlight the problems that we call Atma, self, the problems of self, where there's actually anatta or anatma. It will show us anitya, anicca, impermanence as well. And that's a big one, isn't it? Because in a sense, metta, we've got to learn to love impermanence (laughs) too. Because the one thing that's permanent is impermanence. It ain't going to go away. So, you know, in using that as the ground in which you operate, the, met, the ground of metta, you are transforming and also opening ourselves up to the whole range, which I think personally is produced by insight meditation as well. But that's another big story. <laughs> What is going on in my mind is, um, is it necessary that there are two to tangle? I mean, or can I have the matter inside of me, inside of all my actions and relations? Although it doesn't come from the other side. Where is the the problem then? Where is the... There is no problem, <laughs> in a sense. I mean, again, it's expectation as if you expect something to come from outside. No, well, I don't expect, but isn't there um, a relationship or the interconnectedness always goes further further? Yes. <laughs> what, we, what, what I think you can experience is in, in using meta, not automatically getting something back, you wouldn't automatically in many situations get anything back at all. But seeing those situations where when you're operating from that ground of meta, things do change. Because because it's coming from this side. So all of those normal irritations and hurts and distress and that you get from others is in a sense soothed. By metta, because metta has replaced irritation and anger and all of the no- ways that we are conditioned to react to those things. Yeah. So, yes, it transforms our relations with others. Not all, I think it would be overly idealistic. Yeah. Not because no, not everybody's going to respond to it, but a lot will. Can you um, say how um, personal suffering can generate, how we can use that to generate matter? Personal suffering? I'll certainly be saying, well, I'm sure one of us will be, even if it's not me, we'll be saying quite a lot more about that, particularly when we get to compassion. One of the things I think that I find personally very useful is, is that of seeing that, in a sense, all of us are experiencing dukkha. 
all of us are experiencing dukkha. And this comes back to a passage in Shantideva, which really I find very powerful, which is, you know, it, it's, it makes no sense to talk about my suffering or your suffering, or your dukkha. It's the word that I prefer almost to use it in its original form. It only makes sense to talk about the dukkha, the problem that we have. Understanding that we're, in a sense, all dukkering, <laughs> if that's what we're doing, um, understanding that we're all dukkering can help to open us up to helping each other in our problems. That's kind of response. To, I don't know if yeah. it's addressed your... I was just thinking, how, how can you kind of transform suffering into... How can you sort of use that as, as, as a way of projecting matter? So how do you transform that inside yourself so that you're... What you're feeling is it becomes something else, becomes matter. Well, I think you can, I mean, well, I don't think it becomes meta. What you can have is a meta-relationship to the forms of distress that arise for you. Whether, I mean, I don't know, perhaps anybody else would like to kind of respond to this one, because it's, it's quite important. I personally don't see that, that the distress is going to be transformed into meta. What we have is a different relationship to our forms of distress, which we call dukkha. In other words, we learn to hold it differently. We learn to hold it with that ground of metta rather than rail against it. Because often that's the patterns that we're caught in when we're going through dukkha. And actually, I'll just spend a moment saying that because we, and, and this obviously is a common translation, suffering is the common translation of this word dukkha. But dukkha is everything that's unsatisfactory for us, everything. All the forms of unsatisfactoriness that we experience. Yeah. The actual etymology of it comes from two words, two aspects, two little Pali Sanskrit words. There's a do, which is unpleasant and dirty. <laughs> and ka, which means space. So literally, literally the word means an unpleasant or dirty space to be in. And often referred to in the original text, they often referred to the hole into which the axe fitted. Uh, and it was packed with grease and dirt and went round. Uh, and it was that kind of dirty, gritty unpleasantness that was referred to in that term dukkha. Now, in a way, what we're transforming it into is, is a more pleasant space. The grittiness comes from certain mental predilections, you know, the ways that we deal with it. Certain aspects of life, which we might, you know, physical pains and that, you might want to call suffering, but come with something else added to it, which is our mental position that we take on them. We, for example, when we suffer physically, sometimes even mentally, we suffer all the time. But we physically suffer and we add to it by adding something mental to it as well. We add, you know, add the mental dimension to our experience to the pain, the physical pain. Now, what we are doing with metta practice is, initially is learning to see and hold even our patterns of reactivity in a different way. 
acting more kindly towards them, letting them go, sort of suggesting earlier on to them, rather than holding on to them. So the metta becomes a way, in a sense, of starting to release those patterns which we normally bring to our experience. I often joke about this. I say, how do you like the kind of modern word? How do you like your experience, with or without additives? (laughs) We don't have to have it with our conditioned additives, which we keep on adding to our experience. So it's not so much, I think, of transforming it into... Others might have a different take on this, but I don't see it as much as transforming it into as a relinquishment through bringing meta to those forms of distress. Yeah. Isn't part of the answer to um, possibly wouldn't a clear understanding of selflessness help? Yes. Um, And I'm I'm rather surprised this isn't actually more central to the the whole... um, um, cultivation of matter and, and that it would circumvent lots of the problems that you've alluded to the uh, problems is, with, uh, uh, in fact the next talk I will give will be on Anatala <laughs> so <laughs> it's very central to what we're doing in fact but even in a sense directing the mind into metta practice even if one doesn't have a fully blown conception of Anatala of not self even just that very m- movement into trying to generate good thoughts about others, you know, using the kind of key phrases that you use. Just simply that orientation is uh, just a, a wee fractional diminishment of self. Yeah. We're starting to erode that self-concept and self-grasping just by turning the mind in a slightly different way. Yeah. But you're absolutely right, it is key to, to this practice. Okay, I think I'll draw this... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.